This week's podcast sponsor is Edgility Consulting, a full-service national executive search and talent consulting firm. Edgility helps clients find, hire, and support the talent they need to make a difference in the lives of youth. Put them to work for you. Learn more at www.edgilityconsulting.com. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. What is your favorite satirical take on higher education? Maybe it's Gene Smiley's Moo, or Don DeLillo's White Noise, or it could be the movie Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. Let's face it, there are almost endless works of fiction poking fun at academic life. As the summer ends and we head into the fall semester, we wanted to take a moment to celebrate this rich tradition of college parody. And look at what these works say about the big challenges facing higher education today. Because maybe one of the best ways to call attention to the serious issues we talk about every week on this podcast is through a bit of humor. Today, we're going to talk to three different writing professors with something to say about satire. One is the author of an acclaimed novel, which is very funny. Another did an unusual work of satire on Twitter to call attention to the plight of adjuncts. And the third has a suggestion for the academic satire that he wishes someone would write. Let's start with Julie Schumacher, who wrote one of my new favorites in this genre. It's called The Shakespeare Requirement, and it recently came out in paperback. It was one of the Washington Post's most notable works of fiction in 2018, and the New Yorker magazine said the book burns with moral anger about the real-life woes of the Academy. The novel is set in a fictional liberal arts college in the Midwest, where the English department is falling apart both literally and in spirit. Its offices are underheated, full of rodents or wasps, and it doesn't have a budget because the faculty can't even agree on a one-page statement of vision for why they exist. And that's largely because its professors are locked in a dispute over whether or not to require Shakespeare. Meanwhile, the economics department, which shares a building with English, just got renovated thanks to private gifts and is led by a cutthroat, metrics-loving chair looking to kick English out of the building so it can expand the economics department's power. The Shakespeare Requirement is actually a sequel to an even more inventive book by Schumacher called Dear Committee Members. That one centers on the very same English department, but it's written entirely in the form of letters of recommendation that one English professor writes, endlessly it seems, for his students and colleagues. In fact, you you quickly get the sense that writing all these form letters leaves this professor no time to think about his own teaching and writing. That book won Schumacher the Thurber Prize for American Humor, and she was the first woman ever to win that honor. I was able to sit down with Julie Schumacher in her faculty office at the University of Minnesota, where she's a professor of English and creative writing. It's actually a pretty nice office, though she says she used to be in crummier digs in the basement, and that, that helped inspire part of the novels. My biggest surprise in talking with Schumacher is that she does not see herself as a comic writer and didn't start out with any intention of writing a work of satire. I um, started writing Dear Committee Members because during an undergraduate class, I was talking about form and telling the students, you can start a short story based on a form. You can choose recipes from a grandparent or a series of emails between friends. One of the students said to me, well, what would your form be? if you were to start with a form, and I said, being kind of facetious, I would start with a letter of recommendation because I write so many of them. And uh, I told that to a colleague who said, you know, that, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> it hadn't really occurred to me. And so um, 
again, I, I never considered myself a humor writer or a satirist or either of those things, but um, decided if I were going to write something in the form of a letter of recommendation, it would naturally lead to uh, some fun about academia. Still, the books are so full of life and energy that I asked her if it came from any pent-up frustration with how much bureaucracy was involved in her own job as a professor. Well, in both books, I have um, in Dear Committee Members and The Shakespeare Requirement, the main character is Jason Fitger. He's a professor of English at Payne University, P-A-Y-N-E, in the Midwest. And it is amazing how quickly his voice came to me. I, I very much hope I am not Jason Fitger. On the other hand, there are things that he says that have crossed my mind. And I, I, I thought, okay, I would never say that. That would be rude. That would be inappropriate. Um, that would be ridiculous or absurd. And I would just let Jason Fitger say whatever those things were, whatever came into my head that I would squelch quickly because it would not be the right thing to say. He was able to say them. It was, it was great to, to make a sort of evil little version of myself and, and let him say what he liked. So what does this evil little version of this professor end up saying? Well, the letters in Dear Committee Members are constantly making fun of the act of writing letters of recommendation, as you might guess. And they're often full of social commentary on things like how different the work going on in an English class is from the jobs that some of this professor's students apply for after they leave college. Take this example from the audiobook version of Fitker writing to a grocery store on behalf of a student applying for a job there. Dear Ms. Ingersoll, this letter is intended to bolster the application to Wexler Foods of my former student, John Lizinski, who completed the junior-senior creative writing workshop three months ago. Mr. Lizinski received a final grade of B, primarily on the basis of an 11-page short story about an inebriated man who tumbles into a cave and surfaces from an alcoholic stupor to find that a tentacled monster a sort of fanged and copiously salivating octopus, if memory serves, is gnawing through the flesh of his lower legs, the monster's spittle burbling ever closer to the victim's groin. Though chaotic and improbable, even within the fantasy horror genre, the story was solidly constructed. Dialogue consisted primarily of agonized groans and screaming. The chronology was relentlessly clear. Mr. Lezinski attended class faithfully, arriving on time, and rarely succumbed to the undergraduate impulse to check his cell phone for messages or relentlessly zip and unzip his backpack in the final minutes of class. Whether punctuality and an enthusiasm for flesh-eating cephalopods are the main attributes of the ideal Wexler employee, I have no idea, but Mr. Lezinski is an affable young man, reliable in his habits, and reasonably bright you might start him off in produce, rather than seafood or meats. Whimsically, Jason T. Fitger, Professor of Creative Writing, English, Payne University. At one point, I wanted to see if I could make him talk about his sex life in a letter written for the benefit of a colleague, and uh, that was a fun challenge. I, I did get him to do that. It's one of the things that struck me in reading The Shakespeare Requirement, which is so much fun, is how much... When the sh perspective shifts from a professor to a student, as it does to a dean of the economics department, to, you know, somebody else, that they really, and even longtime professors who are not, the, you know, in charge, like Jay Ficker, your main character is, that their perspectives are so different and that they, they really don't 
understand the other at all. Like they're so, they have such, it feels like they're just so isolated in there with their blinders and they just can't see each other, even though they're all in this very myopia. small world. Yeah, there's a real myopia, I think. And I, I wanted in the Shakespeare requirement for people to be diametrically opposed about certain things, but no one is necessarily wrong in their view. There's a Professor Cassavan, who's a Shakespeare scholar, who's adamant that Shakespeare must be taught and must be required for undergrad English majors. Uh, and then there's Jason Fitker, the chair of the department, who doesn't particularly care whether Shakespeare is taught or not. He just needs to get a decision made in his department so that he can have a budget. And um, it's interesting to look at universities that do or no longer have a requirement that undergrad English majors study Shakespeare. That's where the novel, the second one, came from, was, was thinking about that issue. Shakespeare or no? And yet it's funny how little that actually is being discussed by the characters because they're caught up in this Kafka-esque story, like you said, about whether they have a budget or not. Yeah, Kafkaesque is the right um, word for it. When we come back, what Schumacher and her characters think of technology's role in colleges. And I tracked down a couple other professors trying their hand at academic satire. Stay tuned. This week's episode is brought to you by Agility, a company that helps education organizations find, hire, and keep high-quality talent. I recently talked with Agility's co-founder, Christina Greenberg, who had plenty of advice about how to be smart about not just hiring, but about growing an organization's leadership and creating a succession plan. One of her pro tips, think about diversity early. You know, I tell a lot of my clients, I'm happy to do a search for you for a CEO or an ED or a senior leader. I would really love it if next time you're doing this search, you don't have to hire me, right? And you've done the work internally to groom and build people up to those senior roles. Um, and, when, and particularly when we're thinking about diversity and inclusion, you may need to hire a woman or a person of color at a lower level at first because they haven't been given as many opportunities to be in the C-suite. But if you groom and develop them, how successful can they be? As I mentioned, I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of business and tech ones. And when I hear Kara Swisher or Alex Bloomberg talk to tech people, a lot of the women have been grown up through the ranks, right? You know, the CEO of Pepsi or the CEO of these other organizations came through the organization up to that senior level. And I think that's great. And I think we need to do more of that. And so recognizing talent internally and the companies that are doing this, that are, again, hiring people for future needs as well, providing training and development, having regular conversations with people about their aspirations and dreams, both so you can keep them before they decide to go somewhere else and so that you can help them reach those aspirations and dreams. To find out more about Agility, visit agilityconsulting.com. That's E-D-G-I-L-I-T-Y consulting.com. Now back to the episode. One of the defining traits of Fitger, this fictional English professor, is his aversion to technology. He refuses to use things like PCAL, the university's scheduling app, or to check his voicemail. And that constantly hinders his character's efforts, since he keeps missing required meetings and doesn't get a chance to defend his department in the campus newspaper because he's always unavailable for comments since he doesn't check his messages. So I had to ask Schumacher about her views on tech and higher ed. I'm kind of a Luddite, as Fitger is, and, uh, you know, you look around here in my office, I have, for example, a paper planner. I do not keep uh, my <laughs> schedule on a computer or on a phone. I rarely use a cell phone. If you look over here, my telephone, 
probably from uh, it is it is a yeah wow that is a classic that looks like if it was red it'd be the hotline to the to the you know to the call the bombs on but yeah it's probably from the early 80s i like that phone they keep offering to update me with a new phone and i resist as much as possible they always want to bring me you know updated computer system no 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 i use uh, word perfect i write by hand and then i type onto word perfect so um you know I, i'm very old school so, I mean, why? All this technology is supposed to make our lives easier. It really doesn't. You know, let's, let's just admit that. Like email, when it first came out, it was so convenient. Now I think most of us spend our lives trying to get through email. That's become, you know, a massive task every day is how do I get through email? Um, I, don't, I don't want to spend my life <laughs> thinking that way. Uh, every time I, I get time to write, I leave the phone and the computer behind, and I sit in a room by myself with no technological devices of any kind, and it's terrific. It is just wonderful. What have you found in being able to become this you know, Jason Ficker voice and explore these other things? Are you, what, have, what do you think you've learned maybe about this world you're you're using that tool to, to look into that you that surprised you or that you've kind of come to learn through the process of writing these two books? Well, I think at some point we've got to stop um, spending money at universities and colleges on, you know, glorification of um, student facilities like, you know, climbing walls. And um, I saw in some article somewhere that uh, at LSU they have a, a lazy river shaped in the letters of LSU. And I thought, how much, <laughs> how many student dollars are going to stuff like that? Um, my, my, one of my kids went to um, a school in Iowa, Cornell College, which was a terrific little school. They didn't have loads of amenities, particularly in the athletics. And that place was a lovely educational institution and economically a bargain it was a great place and it be partly because it didn't have the, the, the too many letters to do a a, 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 a lazy river it in, probably in, wouldn't do a lazy river in iowa anyway uh too much snow in the winter but um you know th- there's a massive gap now between the ivy leagues and the elite private colleges that charge amounts of money that are almost unfathomable now for most Americans and community colleges where you have lots of adjunct faculty who are barely paid a living wage and the the economics of higher ed has gotten very strangely um, distorted. I did notice though that you mentioned in the acknowledgments that you aren't necessarily you're not picking people that you've these are not like this is not an autobiography. Absolutely not. No, um, you know it's it's a massive exaggeration. I mean, it's wildly um, imagined because I didn't want to be skewering any real life people. I love my job. I love my colleagues. I'm really fortunate to have the job that I do. And so, yeah, I used bits of urban lore. I made stuff up all over the place. I never wanted to portray a real life colleague here. So why do we have so many satirical novels about higher education? I asked that question to another sometimes writing professor, John Warner, author of Why They Can't Write, and a former editor at the online humor site McSweeney's Internet Tendency. You know, the satire uh, built on um, noticings of irony or uh, odd juxtapositions, there's sort of no better place in the college campus. A space that is... um, 
supposedly rooted in very high-minded ideals, but um, those of us who have worked inside of them recognize the many, many ways that the uh, reality conflicts with the ideals, and those are the ingredients for satire and humor. And, um, you know, we, we, uh, it's a kind of tried-and-true formula, but it's such a good formula, you can keep tweaking it and remaking it, and uh, it's, it still feels fresh, at least to me. I, it, it's, a, it's a form I love. I don't know if I would call it a genre in and of itself, but it's, it's close to it. I'll come back to Warner in a bit. And, and by the way, if you didn't catch it, we had John on talking about his book in a previous episode, so you should definitely look for that. But all of this talk of satire reminded me of another writing professor who uses tech to invite his students and colleagues to get in on the joke. His name is Mark Marino, a professor of English at the University of Southern California. He and a colleague organize online writing challenges that they call netprovs, or network improvisations. Just to get a sense of it, in one of them, called Cooking with Anger, he said the professors gave each participating student a randomly generated basket of ingredients, as he put it, a father, a bus, an apple, a piece of lettuce, and then a packet of emotions, like a half pinch of jealousy or a quarter dollop of anger, and then they would have to write a short story that used all those ingredients. It's all a little hard to picture, and even Marino struggles with how to define netprov. Here's what he told me. A creative, often a creative role playing with others in an emergent creation that helps you um, think back on some of the, again, in a satirical way, playful way, on the folly of our culture. So we, we've had projects like um, One Week No Tech, which was an imaginary technology detox where people are, or fast, where people imagine giving up technology for a week and then tweeting about every moment of it as it happened. So, so inspired by those people who take those photographs of themselves uh, out, out in nature and they say, look, I finally have gotten offline. Right. And then they post that to Instagram instantly. The second, um, yeah. you know, we, and, we, and we've done, and we continue to sort of per, pursue what we see are the, I mean, we're, we're no black mirror, but we continue to pursue, um, the the vices of our times. We just finished one this summer that was a summer school for troubled algorithms. It was called the Machine Learning Breakfast Club. So, you know, I think think we kind of we 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 look around our culture. I, you know, we're no, we're no uh, psychiatrists or doctors, but we try try to get a sense of where we see some uh, a place that could use an intervention of one kind or another. And then we create these playgrounds where people can come in and reflect on them together in a creative, fun space. So a couple of years ago, while the Occupy Wall Street protests were going on, Marino helped organize a very public kind of netprov using a Twitter account called Occupy MLA. The MLA in this case refers to the Modern Language Association, the powerful scholarly association for college English professors. And they began with a series of tweets and, you know, it's sort of like self-deprecating remarks about having cash bars or, or the anxiety of people who, are, um, who, who have to you know, sit through all these panels or people who ask a, make a statement instead of asking a question, that sort of thing. So at first, I think we seemed very much like, like one, another, yet another one of those good-natured ribbing towards the MLA. You know, one of our first slogans was something like, uh, only the Oxford comma divides us or something like that. Um, so you could you could sort of get the flavor of those, but I, I must say that I had been um, 
really in my teaching career. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not tenured now. I'm not even tenure track. So I've been an adjunct or contingent faculty uh, for my entire teaching career. And I, and I've definitely had time where I've gotten to see the way people can be exploited by the system. And certainly the like adjunctification of universities, but also the move away from tenure and things like that. I've seen the way that that's affected real people's lives who have to, you know, teach at three and four colleges or they teach seven classes a semester or or whatever it may be um, because of the lack of tenure jobs and the, in the increasing reliance of universities on faculty who um, are again, either adjuncts or part-timers. Anyway, so Occupy MLA became this this movement that took up that that question of adjuncts' rights, but it, but it was a satire, and so the characters were kind of faulty. You know, the their leader was uh, a medievalist named Charles, who was just um, you know for as as little as precarious as he was, he was equally uh, condescending and and snide. Um, and he he wanted to teach medieval literature, but he always had to teach these composition classes. Um, there was another woman, uh, Hazel, who would who kept getting strung along by various departments. She ended up having in the second season, if I could call it, the second year we did it, or the second um, run of Occupy MLA. She gets led on by a character that she calls Prof Darcy, or that's that's the name we get him. So she's just kind of a Pride and Prejudice realm where, where he's he's leading her on romantically as the school is leading her on with her you know possibility of one day hiring her. And again, that's something that I've lived through and seen a lot of people go through. Where again, you take these awful schedules and these horrible, uh, hor- horribly um, high enrollment, uh, giant. Uh, you know, class assignments. Let's say you're working as many classes as you could teach, plus taking every volunteer opportunity you can to prove yourself to this this college that really has is no no intention necessarily of, of hiring you. So anyway, so that that was we we had that go on for however long, and and uh, and our really our our target I think was we we, we called it uh, a requiem for uh, for the dream of a tenure track position. And certainly I was probably working through my own things at that point. But at the same time, we got involved with the real adjuncts and the real part-time faculty movement, the labor unit movement. And we supported them as, as much as a satirical account can um, without ever revealing to those people who we were. I mean, we didn't want to reveal to anyone who we were because we, we were worried about retribution uh, against us if, if anybody knew who was behind this. Not everyone thought the use of a satirical Twitter account was the best way to help the cause of adjuncts. And apparently some didn't really understand that these characters that were tweeting were fictional. So yes, it's that, satire is, you know, it's a, it's a, I always tell my students that sarcasm is a, uh, like a rusty saw, um, and it's something that your kid brother can use, you know, when they don't like something you're doing, right? They put on an exaggerated voice. But satire is something you t- tend to do with a straight face. And it's, it's more like a, like a really sharp scalpel, you know, or an X-Acto knife. And it's, and it's just as likely to cut you as to cut the thing you're trying to cut out of society, you know, the cancer you're trying to go after. So, so anyway, there were, there were people who were very critical of that. Um, and, I mean, we're talking about we're talking about a literary project that was engaged with a literary community. So yeah, I mean, am I surprised there are lots of interpretations or that people could interpret it different ways? No, I'm, I'm not surprised. You know, that, that, that comes with the territory. 
A bigger question I had was whether works of satire like the novels of Julie Schumacher could wind up, unintentionally, providing ammo to those on the political right or others who are criticizing higher ed as being too liberal or dysfunctional. I put that question to John Warner. Yeah, I hadn't. I haven't really considered that. I do. Th- I think it's possible. I mean, the the uh, Julie Schumacher's books really are sort of loving. Her her characters are flawed. They're human, um, but ultimately they are. They reflect what I think goes on on most campuses, which is people trying to do the right thing, often under difficult circumstances. Um, there's always a villain or two, and in these books, they're usually an administrator who is who is uh, operating in in maybe uh, from different motives. Uh, and in in the Shakespeare requirement, as I recall, there's an administrator who is simply absent. Nobody can ever find this person. Um, the pro the provost never appears in in the flesh, um, representing a kind of to me, representing a kind of attitude like where we can always blame something on a provost, like, oh, it's the provost problem. But in this case, the provost is totally absent. Um, I, I, I think it, it's possible the novels could be used this way, but it would be only through a kind of deliberate misreading of them. And I, I think that's probably true of, of a lot of uh, what you correctly note is this now sort of partisan divide over views of higher education. A a lot of what is criticized about higher education um, in terms of politics or partisanship, I think is a fundamental misreading of what's actually going on. Uh, The professorate is quite obviously um, tilted towards liberals politically, but the the number who are engaged in active indoctrination of their students is vanishingly small. um, I've never met one of them. Um, you know, the joke is like, I can't get them to read the syllabus. How could I possibly get them to read Marx or something like that, right? So uh, it, it's just not the work that, that faculty do. It's, it's, it, it wouldn't be consistent with the values most of them hold to try to make a bunch of mini-me's. Are there some out there? Probably, but I've never met them. Um, so I, I feel like a lot of these novels are... are um, um, come from a loving place, but that love is, is, you know, tinted with some measure of disappointment. We wish these spaces that we think are so important could be better and should be better. And, uh, you know, writing a, a, a satire of them is a, is a way to honor them and, and prod them at the same time without doing too much lasting damage. And yeah. And the last question is, do you think there's a, do you think this is a moment with all the, you know, kind of challenges facing higher ed and for everything from costs to, um, you know, kind of the access issues and the um, it, not not to mention this political kind of uh, the kind of culture war. But do you think this is a time where satire might actually be like a more needed, so to speak, or or helpful? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think a, a campus novel that comes fundamentally at the problems of debt would be um, a fascinating book, um, not just for students particularly, but. Um, I know many, many college faculty who are still paying off their loans for their um, for their educations, uh, people with PhDs and tenure. So um, to apply that sort of lens to the world of campus and see all of the ways that that is um, hindering. Maybe I should write this book. I don't know. I could I could envision I could envision a scene where a professor and a student are coworkers at one of the local restaurants because they both need to earn extra money 
to pay off their loans. And what would that dynamic be? Uh, What if the the student has actually been there much longer and is now their professor's supervisor uh, because the professor needs extra money or or something like that? Um, Certainly, um, this is not out of the realm of possibility when you think about adjunct laborers um, needing extra work and the the per-course pay for those sorts of things. So, yeah, I, I, I think more. Um, anything that can sort of shine a light on what's happening in the culture, and I think that's what these novels fundamentally do, is absolutely welcome, at least by me. I asked something similar to Julie Schumacher, but she didn't really buy it, that somehow the Academy deserved or needed more satire than any other part of society just now. Every discipline has to have its wacky side. I think people who work at the post office or a hair salon or at UPS there's got to be really wacky stuff associated with what they do. And lots of us are characters. Um, Human beings are eccentric. But you see more academic satires than other types of satires because in academia you find people who write books. And particularly in English departments, you find people who write novels. And I think there's probably as much wackiness going on at UPS and at the local hair salon, but those people aren't writing novels about them. Now, the, in the end, there's the Shakespeare requirement. We don't really know what happens. Is there going to be a, a sequel, a follow-up? I would never say never. I'm not planning on it at this very moment, but um, we'll see. I am very fond of Jason Fitker, even though he is, he can be a real jerk. I, I have a, a lot of affection for him. He, he means the right things. He means to do the right things, and he cares about things that matter to him deeply. But he just doesn't quite go about those things in a very diplomatic way. I mean, and do you hope by writing a, a book, a pop, work of popular fiction, um, like The Shakespeare Requirement, do you, do you hope that at least more people learn about these issues? Sure. And I hope people just sit down and read novels. You know, I think most people are uh, pressed for time and they're looking at their cell phone and time to turn off the cell phone and sit down and read a novel. Well, I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast, where each week we bring you interviews and stories about how education is changing. To see a list of comic novels about higher education that our guests today recommend, check out our show page at edsurge.com and click on podcast. And feel free to send in your own favorites. And I'll add some to that list on the show page from listeners. Just email them to jeff at edsurge.com. If you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen and take a minute to give us a rating. That will help others find the show. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.